Good morning, friends. We are in the Gospel of Luke. Surprise. <laughs> We've been there for a while for, for you guys. Um, we are at chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. And um, somebody who finds that in the, the blue Bible, shout it out so that we all know where we're going. 1634. Thank you, Hazel. We're really actually picking up right in the middle of the action. So uh, last week, uh, well, two weeks ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem as, as king. Actually, I should just mention this. Everything that um, since three weeks ago through about four weeks from now, it's all happening in one day. Kind of odd for us to unpack it you know, uh, over the course of two months, but it's all one day. Jesus entering, Jesus entering as king, Jesus uh, retaking the temple, reclaiming it as God's space, cleansing it. Jesus teaching with authority. And then Jesus being questioned, hey, where do you get this authority? Jesus giving one more chance for introspection and repentance. That's what we heard last week, where he pointed them back to John's baptism and John's testimony about him, which is very clear. He's Lord. He's the Son of God. And so they had this chance to respond to Jesus. And then um, they didn't respond. And so Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer you. I'm not going to respond to you if you don't. And then what we read this morning is just picking right up on in the flow of that, where Luke writes, he went on to tell the people, and this is really interesting. Notice that he says the people. It's not the leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. It's not the ones who just tried to test his authority, he goes on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid! Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the, what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. God's word.
in his, um, in his book, Not the Way That It's Supposed to Be, Neil Planninga tells this true story that happened in 1992. He says, in 1992, 16 women came forward and accused a U.S. senator, pressed charges against a U.S. senator for flagrant sexual abuse. First, he denied it outright. So it never happened. Then second, he, he started to attack their credibility to slander them. And third, he offered an extraordinary apology. He said, he said, after 16 women had accused him of, at times, standing on their feet and trying to undress and grope them, he said, I never meant to make anyone uncomfortable. But anyways, um, I guarantee you that I'll, I'll go get an assessment and see if my, my um, alcohol has anything to do with this allegation. This, this comment's Plantinga, this says Plantinga, is a, an apology of almost metaphysical elusiveness. He says, nothing happened. Nothing happened. But um, just in case uh, something did happen, you should know that I meant no harm by it. And regardless, um, I might have been loaded at the time. And so I may have missed the... Um, the significance of the non-event that didn't happen. Planning concludes by saying, you know, to a sober observer, this is just a little bit um, hard to follow. A little hard to follow. And I would add that it's sad. It would be laughable if it weren't so hurtful. It's pathetic. And yet, it's also worrisome. It's worrisome for two reasons. First reason is because he's not lying. He really believes, or he really believes that he's not lying. He really believes that he's telling the truth. He really believes that he didn't do anything and that he didn't mean to make anyone uncomfortable and that it's not really his fault. He really means it. But I think the thing that's even more worrisome than the fact that he believes himself is the fact that he's only demonstrating for us something that lives inside of all of us, and that is our human capacity for pulling the wool over our own eyes, for not seeing things we don't want to see. And so, while it would be easy to laugh and scoff and throw this guy under the bus, we're not going to do that. And so just like Jesus looked at these people directly and challenged them, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look directly at these Pharisees, these religious leaders that want to kill Jesus for exposing their sin, and we're not going to throw them under the bus. Until we have looked honestly at our own hearts and said, where does this capacity for self-deception, exhibit itself in me and in my life. Because we are all susceptible. And right now, 
at least two or three or four or five of you are going, boy, I hope so-and-so is listening. And I'm saying, no. No, it's me. It's you. It's all of us. This is common to our humanity. And if we don't have even a sense of any urgency about, Lord, show me where I do this, where I put on blinders, where I don't see because I don't want to see, then we're already caught up in the same problem of not seeing or not being willing to see. It's us. So let's turn and let's look at these um, Pharisees and let's look at what's happening in this text. When Jesus begins by telling this story, he's making a really clear allusion, everybody would have seen it, to Isaiah chapter 5. The whole chapter begins this way. God says through the prophet, I'm going to sing a song about a vineyard that I love. I planted this vineyard. I cleaned it up. I took the rocks out. I, I tended it. I set up a watchtower and a wine press. And, 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 and I looked for good fruit. And all it bore was bad fruit. Now you people of Jerusalem and you Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done that it would have produced good fruit for me? I did everything right and it's not producing fruit. And then he goes on to say that he's going to judge that vineyard. That he's going to take away its fence, its borders, which is its protection. God's saying, I'm not going to protect my people anymore. And there's a, about 23 verses of woes that follow before Isaiah 6, which is Isaiah encountering God in all his holiness in the throne room. So Jesus imports this parable and he retells it. But when Jesus retells it, he adds something. He adds the idea of sharecropping. Sharecropping is a really common um, practice of a landlord renting out his fields or her fields to someone or someone's and that they would farm that plot of land and that part of the agreement would be that they would give the first fruits a certain agreed upon amount to the landlord. So, in Jesus' parable, God the Father is the landlord. This is all, I'm just going to walk through the parable. It's really clear. God the Father is the landlord. And the tenants are his people, Israel. And the vineyard is the combination of God's promises, God's presence, God's laws, everything that God has given, not to Egypt, not to Assyria, not to Babylon, but he's given to Israel. All of his redeeming work that's supposed to be bearing fruit for the world. And so, Israel's the tenants, God the Father is the vineyard owner, the vineyard is his presence, his promises that's supposed to bear fruit for the world. And the folks that are sent to collect money are the prophets whom God's been sending regularly through the years. All the, all the men and women that have said, turn back, come back to the Lord, let your hearts be broken, follow the way of God, do righteousness, seek justice, don't do that, consistently calling the people back. And when Jesus um, says that they mistreat the servants and then the father says, I'll send my son, and they say, 
you know what, let's kill. Let's kill the son and we'll get the inheritance. What, what Jesus is demonstrating here is um, the absurdity, or the craziness of their thinking. Because no um, murdering of the, the heir or the son would have meant that the landlord was in any way obligated to give the land to the tenants. So all that Jesus is doing is drawing up the absurdity of, of killing him. Which is why the people respond to Jesus' parable by saying, God forbid! That would never happen. And that, that's another way of saying, that would never happen. That's crazy. The landlord would never do that. He would never give away his inheritance to someone that had murdered his son. God forbid that that ever happened. That's why they respond that way. And then Jesus comes back and he says, then what's the meaning of this scripture? The stone the builders rejected, this is Psalm 118, has become the cornerstone. Anytime a building was going to be made, the builders had to select the best stone to fit into the corner. The one on which you wanted to build everything else was the best stone. And so they would go through many different stones before they found that best stone. That would be the cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, you're rejecting God's best stone. The, the one that the builders are rejecting has become the stone or is going to become the one upon which God's going to build all of his work in this world. And then he says, he indicts them and he says, those who fall on that stone will be broken to pieces. Those on whom it falls will be crushed. And they respond by wanting to kill him. And so, in effect, Jesus has said, this is what he said through the parable. You have consistently rejected God. You have consistently borne bad fruit. You have um, consistently been wayward. And so, because of that, God's promises, his presence, his covenant, it's going to be removed from you. You're being rejected. You are no longer going to be the ones through whom God works in this world. He's going to take it away and he's going to give it to another. You're losing that privilege. And actually we're going to see that transition happen next chapter where Jesus gathers his twelve for the Last Supper. And what does he do? He says this cup is the new covenant. See how? See what he's doing? He's, and then he confers a kingdom on his disciples. So this kingdom, this way that God's been working in the world through Israel, it's done. They've rejected him. He's beginning to work anew. All of God's work in the world from now on is going to be built upon him, the cornerstone, and those who follow him. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. What we need to do is step back and we need to press a little bit deeper into the reaction of these these leaders who want to kill him. Because here's the thing, I bet nobody in this room this morning is surprised that they want to kill him. And I think you're not surprised because we've been tracking with these leaders for two years and we've been watching their reaction to Jesus. But here's what I want to say. We ought to be surprised, we ought to be shocked out of our seat that any leader, let alone any person in the kingdom of God, would say, I'm beyond rebuke. I'm beyond having God point out sin in me. How does that happen? How do you get to a place of spiritual leadership in God's kingdom, and place yourself above rebuke. 
We ought to expect out of these folks the same reaction that we saw in David in the Old Testament when the prophet Nathan came to him and exposed his adultery and his murder. I've sinned against the Lord. Straightforward confession, acknowledgement, and repentance. But we don't get that. There's not even a willingness to look. And so we ought to at least ask ourselves, how does it happen to be that people whose role is teaching the very scriptures that say, for example, God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? These are scriptures that these Folks have memorized that they teach. They teach the human sickness of the heart. They teach that we've all turned, that we all need saving, that we all need atonement, that we all need forgiveness and cleansing. They teach it. And they don't need any of it. How do you get to that place? You do, not, you do not start in that place. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think it's a good day to reject God. I think it's a good day to see myself as beyond the need for having my own sin exposed and dealt with. You don't wake up and say that kind of thing. It's not rational. It's the same way that, that you don't um, plant an acorn and wake up tomorrow with a 100-foot-tall oak tree that's three feet wide. You start with an acorn. And so what's the acorn that leads to an inability to see and acknowledge sin when it's called out in us, whether as leaders or or as believers. It's pride. Pride not in the sense of maybe arrogance or boastfulness, but pride in the sense of independence, of I'm not letting anyone else speak to me or um, hold something up before me. We we have an incredible capacity to downplay or to not see things in ourself that we don't want to see. And yet, we are those in Christ 
who have new life, who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are putting sin to death. Paul says, after he goes on about, there's no, Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. He goes on to say to those of us that have no condemnation, therefore, put to death, put to death the misdeeds of the sinful nature. So we're those who, with the help of the Holy Spirit, put to death sin. And so, let's, um, let's just, before I go any further, let's take a straw poll. Could I just see a show of hands for all the perfect people in this room? Just the perfect people, okay. Okay, right. Right, so in theory, in theory, um, we who are not perfect really want our, our sin put to death, right? There's a reason why the church for several millennia has looked on sin and um, called some sins in particular deadly, the seven deadly sins. Because sin, says James, when it gets full grown, gives birth to death. And sin has a power all in its own to deceive. It takes captive, says Paul. It blinds, it covers over, so that when it's given enough room, we don't see it anymore. It changes us. We change in the act of sinning. So we have a fear and a reverence for sin. We don't treat it lightly. So we're not perfect. We want it put to death. We agree in theory, right? Get it out of me. It leads to death. Get it away. Let me ask you something. If we are those who want it gone, how many of us have people in our lives who are welcomed to come up and say, Dave, I want to talk to you about, this is what I see. Who are those people in your life? Is anyone welcome in your life to come and to say, I see sin in your heart. I see an attitude. I see an action. I see a pattern. I see something. I believe the Lord wants to. The Lord's inviting. Let's read this scripture together. Who? Who's doing it? Who's welcome? The quickest way to spiritual self-deception is to cut ourselves off from an awareness of our sin, our sinfulness. Listen to these words from Paul. Romans chapter 7. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, the chief. You know when he said those words? At the end of his ministry... Shortly before he died, in Rome, I'm the chief of sinners. The man who'd started churches all across Asia, through whom God moved in power, through, who consistently built up the churches in love, who suffered and sacrificed for Jesus like nobody else might ever have, says, I am the chief of all sinners, present tense. Are we able to echo those words of Paul about ourselves? Not, not in a theoretical sense. Not in a sense like, well, it, God's word says it. 
And I know Paul wasn't just talking about himself, even though he was. I, I know it's true about everybody, and so it must be true that I'm a chief of sinners too. But are we able to say those words about ourselves because we've said, God, show me. Show me the depth of my anger, my lust, my pride, my jealousy, my apathy, my sloth. My envy, my critical nature, God, show me. Have we allowed the Lord to take us? And you know what? I think, I think most of us as Christians shy quite far away from that prayer and from asking God to do that. I think most of us follow the what we, we might call the Adamic or the Adam and Eve pattern, when they had it exposed that they sinned, what did they do? They hid and they covered up. They were naked and ashamed. There's symbolism going on here. They weren't just naked because they realized they had body parts and were ashamed. They felt vulnerable. There was something that had happened that that made them have an awareness of God's holiness and their unholiness, of their fall from it. And so they hid. They, They covered up and God in His mercy clothed them because the knowledge of their sinfulness was too much. And friends... The truth is that it's too much for us too. It's too much for us to bear. And so, quite naturally, we run from it. We, I, I would say to you that we're like politicians who won't accept any data that doesn't fit the narrative they're trying to construct. We're watching that right now. We're just the same. We don't hear. We downplay Any data about ourselves that doesn't fit the narrative that we're trying to construct. We're good. We're fine. We're all right. A little little problem here. A little sin there. A little struggle here. Maybe a bit of a bigger one there. But not the heart's deceitful above all things. Or we, we, We do this subconsciously. We're quite, quite able to look on our spouses and our friends and see the sin in them. It's not that hard. We're even willing to point it out sometimes. But ourselves? My own lack of gentleness? My impatience? My criticism? Me? I don't like seeing that about myself. So I, I push, I ignore, I psh, psh, psh. But here's the thing that happens when and if we do that ignoring. We cut ourselves in that clothing, in that facade that we put on, those false clothes, that false sense of self that's okay. We do two things. One, we downplay the need for the gospel. But two, we cut ourselves off from the source of hope and healing. 
When we cover ourselves up that way, we cut our, we're actually, it's a pretending that happens. And in the pretending, we cut ourselves off from God. And we can do that in church, in the pew, in small groups. We can do that while living a Christian life. You feeling the weight of this? It's weighty. It's, it's not just the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the teachers of the law who are able to not see things about themselves they don't want to see. We all have a capacity for it. And so what is the remedy and where is the hope? It's here. Take your eyes off yourself. Put them on the landlord. The, put them on that one who would, would see one servant get beat and would send another one in mercy. And he'd see another servant get beat. Doesn't look good. And he still would send another servant. Love motivates him to send another servant. And when the third servant gets beat, and it really looks like there's an entrenched pattern here, he says, I'll send my son. I'll send my son. Surely they wouldn't. Put your eyes on the landlord who has holds out hope even to the very end, who opens the way and the path for these who've been rejecting Him to the very end. Because it doesn't stop here. Because the Son whom He sends keeps coming and keeps going and even as they're whipping and they're slapping and they're mocking and they're spitting, He stands and He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they don't know, they're blind, they don't know what they're doing. Put your eyes on the Father that would send the Son that would bless those who are hating Him. And don't take Him off. Don't take Him off for one morning or one noon or one night, but keep your eyes there. Keep your eyes on the kind of love that would come after hard-hearted, blind people like you and me like these leaders, and that would make a way for their repentance. He never stopped. He never stopped to the cross, through the grave, and even after the grave, His Spirit went out seeking. And if they would turn, He would take them. That's the kind of forgiving love of our God. And you have to keep your eyes on that love at all times. That love is the only thing that makes it safe enough to be honest with ourselves. That's why Paul says when he writes the Romans later in chapter 8, I know, I'm convinced, I am certain, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Not angels, not demons, not powers, not principalities, not the future, not the past, not height, not depth. There's nothing that can separate me. I'm in Christ and He's in me. And that's why he can pray for the Ephesians. I pray that you would be rooted and established. You'd be planted 
in the love of God. This love that knows no bounds. Not height, not depth. No bounds. And that you'd be filled up beyond the measure with this love. That love. That love is the cornerstone. That love is Jesus. That love is what allows ourselves to escape self-deception. Because friends, there's a, there's a negative kind of falling on Jesus and coming to pieces, but like Lindsay prayed about, there's a good kind. I think there's a healthy kind of falling on Jesus. There's the kind where we so trust that love of God toward us in our sins and the depth of them that we fall on him and off comes all of the pretense. Off comes every way that we cover and clothe and cover over the sin that would kill. Comes off. So we're going to close this sermon by singing, by looking on that love. What's the name again, Lindsay? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Let's, um, let's just stand and get ready to sing. And, um, and to, at the same time, to forsake pride and to ask the Lord um, to keep us from Yeah, from sinning. Thank you, Linda. From pretense.